0: Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio, a weekly look at news, politics and culture from a socialist perspective. The war in Ukraine has sparked intense discussion and debate among socialists and Marxists worldwide about how to understand and respond to this war. Should we support or oppose NATO governments sending weapons and military aid to the Ukrainian government? What is an internationalist and socialist strategy to avoid catastrophic nuclear conflict, end this war and defend the interests of the working class and the democratic right to self-determination of Ukrainian peoples? This week we have an audio version of an article by Paul Murphy in Rupture on this issue. A critical response to it from fellow PPP member Ollie Power will be included in the forthcoming issue of Rupture, which is with the printers now, and we will have a special launch party for that new issue on Saturday, December 10th in Connolly Books in Temple Bar, Dublin at 7pm, opened all. Come along for wine, a panel discussion, a special Rupture Radio live recording, and a chance to get your copy of Rupture. To facilitate this discussion and debate on the war in Ukraine, the International Collective MORE, Marxist Organising for Revolutionary Eco Socialism are bringing together a roundtable discussion and debate on Zoom this Sunday, December 4th at 6pm Irish time, with Paul Murphy speaking alongside Andrew Call of the Anti-Capitalistas in Spain and a member of the 4th International Bureau, Aaron Amaral of the Tempest Collective in the US and a member of Ukraine Solidarity Network, and Bruno Magalhães, member of the International Commission of MEZ and All in Brazil. While there is general agreement that this war involves questions of self-determination of Ukraine, Russian imperialism and Western imperialism, there has been significant disagreements about what conclusions should be drawn. Some argue that socialists around the globe should support the struggle for self-determination of Ukraine and therefore support military aid by the US and other Western countries. Others argue that in this inter-imperialist proxy war, socialists, for example in the US and NATO powers, have to oppose the billions in military aid being given to the pro-capitalist, pro-NATO Zelensky government. Based on mutual respect for the different opinions of Marxists, this debate with representatives of both sides aims to clarify the issues and contribute to a better Marxist understanding of the challenges involved. A link to register for the event is in the show notes. Please come along if you can. Without further ado, here's this week's episode, an article from Paul Murphy from the latest issue of Rupture. Imperialism Today, Understanding the Invasion of Ukraine by Paul Murphy Originally published in Issue 8 of Rupture magazine, published online at rupture.ie on September 19th, 2022 The Russian invasion of Ukraine signals the opening of a new period of global disorder. It is marked by the continuing decline of US imperialism and the rise of China. Mounting tensions between imperialist powers are likely to be a dominant feature of the coming years. They bring with them the probability of further regional and proxy conflicts, as well as the danger of all out war between nuclear powers. How the revolutionary left responds in developing a consistently anti imperialist and anti capitalist position will be crucial. Avoiding falling into any of the imperialist camps and consistently advocating for a socialist position independent of them is essential. Our goal must be that of James Connolly to escape the horrors of war by throwing the barbaric ruling class from power. The war. On Ukraine has provoked markedly different responses by different sections of the revolutionary left. In a sense, this is not surprising. Wars are acid tests for revolutionaries, and this conflict marks a qualitatively new situation. The analyses from the socialist left to the invasion of Ukraine can be very broadly grouped into three categories. One, those who have taken the side of Russia in the conflict, either because they see this as a conflict between U.S. imperialism and a non-imperialist Russia, or because they consider Ukraine to be a fascist-dominated state. Two. Those who see the Ukrainian conflict simply as an example of an imperialist country invading a former colony and have taken the position of support for Ukraine. Three, those who see two intertwined and sometimes contradictory aspects to this conflict. The Russian imperialist invasion of Ukraine, in which they take the side of the Ukrainian people, and the inter-imperialist conflict between the US-led NATO and Russian imperialism, in which they oppose both sides. For clarity, I am firmly in the third camp, and this article sets out to argue for this analysis against both supporters of Russia and those who fail to recognise the inter-imperialist conflict which is present. How we respond to this crisis is important, not in relation to how socialists can contribute to ensuring a just peace in Ukraine, but because we are likely to see more conflicts with a similar character in the coming years. Getting it right is important because it will enable us to take principled positions in the inter-imperialist conflicts to come. For all who define ourselves as revolutionary Marxists, a common point of understanding is an appreciation of the disastrous consequences of the betrayal of the vast majority of socialists supporting their own side with various justifications in World War I. Back to basics. It is worth restating some basic elements which inform the revolutionary Marxist approach to war. Unlike some of our allies in the anti-war movements internationally, we are not pacifists. We are not opposed to violence in all circumstances we recognise that there are just and unjust wars, wars of liberation and wars of oppression. It is useful to list some of the categories that Marxists have historically used to analyse wars. 1. Wars of national liberation or revolts against colonialism. For example, Lenin in Socialism and War outlined, If tomorrow Morocco were to declare war on France, or India on Britain, or Persia, or China on Russia, and so on, these would be just and defensive wars, irrespective of, of who would be the first to attack? Any socialist would wish the oppressed, dependent, and unequal states victory over the oppressor, slaveholding, and predatory great powers. End quote. In other words, it is not a question of who fires the first bullet. In conflicts between imperialist capitalist countries and oppressive states or nations, socialists take the side of the latter. Two inter-imperialist wars, i.e., wars between imperialist countries. The classic example being World War I. In opposition to the social patriotism of the mainstream of the Second International, which supported their own side in that war, Lenin sharply formulated the idea of revolutionary defeatism to clarify that socialists do not have a side. In bending the stick, as Hal Draper explained, he did initially confuse things by using formulations which wrongly suggested that Russian revolutionaries should wish for the victory of Germany. Trotsky's position was actually clearer in consistently arguing against support for either In such a clash and arguing that the end of the war which socialists should fight for was based on quote the intervention of the revolutionary proletariat which interrupts the normal development of military events end quote three wars between post-capitalist or worker states and capitalist states in the conflict between vietnam and u.s imperialism revolutionary socialists took the side of the vietnamese not only because this was a war of national liberation although that would be sufficient but because it was a clash of social systems We do that despite the Stalinism of the Ho Chi Minh leadership, which was responsible for the execution of multiple Trotskyists in 1945. The idea of defence of the degenerated or deformed worker states in a clash with capitalism was a consistent theme in Trotsky's writing from the mid-1930s. Of course, even where such categories would suggest that socialists have a side in the conflict, that is clearly not the end of the matter. We are not just activists who seek to be on the right side of conflicts. We are socialists who are seeking to end all wars through global socialist revolution. For that, the independence of the working class with an emphasis on working class power and a socialist position is essential. For example, in wars of national liberation, socialists would not simply accept the leadership of nationalist forces, but would fight for leadership through demonstrating the superiority of Marx's ideas and strategy in the struggle for liberation. In wars between post-capitalist states and imperialist states, Socialists would not renounce the struggle to overthrow Stalinist bureaucracy and the fight for a political revolution to introduce workers' democracy. Instead, they would seek to demonstrate how the bureaucracy is an obstacle to the struggle for world revolution. How exactly these approaches are implemented will depend on concrete circumstances, including the political character of the nationalist forces and the size and social weight of Marxists. So while socialists were bored to defeat an expulsion of US imperialism from Afghanistan, it is hard to see any circumstances where there would be cooperation between socialist forces and the reactionary Taliban in trying to achieve that aim. In contrast, socialists in France correctly worked to deliver funds to the freedom fighters of the FLN in Algeria, applying the categories to life. Of course, knowledge of these categories does not provide us with the answers to how to treat any given war. Many conflicts do not neatly fall into simply one of these categories, but have features of more than one. World War II, for example, had elements from all three of the categories listed above. Firstly, this was a continuation of World War I and a clash between imperialist powers. Secondly, it included wars of national liberation in independent countries, for example in China against imperialist Japan, but also the struggles of partisan forces in France, Italy, Greece and other countries in Europe. Thirdly, the war between the Soviet Union and German fascism was a clash of social systems. On one side, a degenerated worker state. On the other, a capitalist state ruled by a fascist dictatorship. Even in World War I, a most naked inter-imperialist war, different categories of war were combined. At the start of the war, when Serbia was invaded by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there was undoubtedly an element of war of national liberation among Serbs. In assessing this conflict, Lenin argued that 99% of the war was effectively an inter-imperialist war. He argued that if the invasion was not part of the general European war, then socialists should, quote, desire the success of the Serbian bourgeoisie, end quote, in that conflict. However, quote, Marxist dialectics as the last word in scientific evolutionary method excludes any isolated examination of an object, i.e. one that is one-sided and monstrously distorted. The national element in the Serbo-Austrian war is not, and cannot be, of any serious significance in the general European war. If Germany wins, she will throttle Belgium, one more part of Poland, perhaps part of France, etc. If Russia wins, she will throttle Galicia, one more part of Poland, Armenia, etc., if the war ends in a draw, the old national oppression will remain. To Serbia, i.e. to perhaps 1% or so of the participants in the present war, the war is a continuation of the politics of the bourgeois liberation movement. To the other 99%, the war is a continuation of the politics of imperialism, i.e. of the decrepit bourgeoisie which is capable only of raping nations, not freeing them. End quote. In World War II, Trotsky and the Fourth International worked to separate out the different aspects of the war arguing for support for the Soviet Union in its struggle against Nazi Germany while opposing the war effort of the imperialist forces on either side. Unlike the Stalinist forces, which switched overnight from opposition to the war to full support for the Allies when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, Trotsky emphasised the need to continue to oppose the imperialist aims of the Allied countries, which were, after all, the direct oppressors at the time of vast colonial empires. Trotsky also pointed towards an approach of engaging with the mass anti-fascist consciousness in the Allied countries, through the development of the proletarian military policy, which was effectively the argument that the best way to defeat fascism was through workers' control of the military and the economy. In reality, this was a partial, and correct, break with the weak sides of Lenin's revolutionary defeatism in the context of a war against fascist Germany. So who is an imperialist? In terms of analysing the character of the war in Ukraine, an important, if mostly unstated, question to address is which countries in the world today are imperialist? That begs another question. How do we define imperialism today? Too often some socialists point to the definition of imperialism provided in Lenin's imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. This outlines five factors. Quote, One, the concentration of production and capital has developed to such a high stage that it has created monopolies which play a decisive role in economic life. Two, the merging of bank capital with industrial capital and the creation on the basis of this finance capital of financial oligarchy. Three. The export of capital as distinguished from the export of commodities acquires exceptional importance. four the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations which share the world amongst themselves. And five the territorial division of the world among the biggest capitalist powers is completed. End Relying on this definition, some point to the weakness of Russia in many of these categories, for example, the absence of significant export of capital, to argue that Russia is not imperialist. This tick-box approach to imperialism misses the point of Lenin's pamphlet. It was a popular outline of a Marxist concept of imperialism, building on the work of his fellow Bolshevik, Nikolai Bukharin, in particular. But also, earlier non-revolutionary Marxist writers like J.A. Hobson and Rudolf Hilferding. Above all, it was a political intervention into the debates raging in the socialist movement to argue that the Great War was not a consequence of wrong policy pursued by the political establishments, but a consequence of the development of the capitalist system. In this definition, Lenin was really describing the key trends in the world system of capitalism at that stage, defined as imperialism, not seeking to provide a checklist of requirements for a country to qualify as imperialist. The most important feature of this global system is that of competition between the major powers who have already divided the world out between themselves. That list is not particularly helpful to understand the dynamics of relations in the world today. When we use the term imperialist to describe a country, what we actually mean are capitalist countries which use their economic and or military power to dominate less developed countries with a view to securing raw materials, markets and other benefits for their capitalist class in the context of a world divided between major powers and the systematic exploitation of the labour and nature of peripheral countries. By this definition, while the US and China are clearly the world's largest imperialist powers, Russia is clearly also an imperialist power. It leads a military alliance, the Collective Security Treaty Organisation, CSCO, and maintains a significant sphere of influence in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, which it intervenes in. It is the fourth biggest spender on its military in the world, after the US, which is a long way ahead, China and India. Only a month before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia had troops on the ground in Kazakhstan as part of a CSTO force to ensure stability against the workers' uprising. Ukraine, meanwhile, is not an imperialist nation. It is a former Tsarist colony of Russia, without any sphere of influence or ability to dominate other countries. It is economically weak, with a GDP per capita less than $5,000. Instead, it is the site of struggle between different imperialist powers. It is the case that a reactionary anti-communist and anti-Russian ideology has been dominant since Maiden, with discrimination against Russian speakers and criminalising the promotion of Soviet symbols. There is a far-right presence, including even a partial integration into the state, in the case of the Azov Battalion. However, The suggestion that Ukraine should be treated as equivalent to a fascist state does not stack up. Ukraine remains a capitalist democracy. The far-right parties performed poorly in the 2019 elections, receiving just over 2% between them. Zelensky is a populist neoliberal elected on an anti-corruption platform. There is arguably a greater integration of far-right forces into the Russian capitalist state than there is in the Ukrainian state. The suggestion by some that there is no imperialist invasion of Ukraine or no legitimate struggle of national liberation by Ukrainian people is not dealing with reality. To reach that conclusion, those who argue for this line are compelled to essentially ignore the fact of Russian troops invading and occupying Ukraine against the opposition of the Ukrainian people. To justify this conclusion, one statement promoting this line argues that, quote, post-Soviet Ukraine has been reduced by its oligarchs and foreign capital into a poor, financially bankrupt, fractured, semi-colonial dependency of the Western capital and the IMF and an advanced springboard for war in the service of the NATO aggression against Russia. It is run by Quislings, corrupt oligarchs and neo-Nazis, linking their own comprador interests to the interests of the US, Britain and the EU, cruelly robbing the working population of Ukraine of all its social and national rights. By declaring that Western capitalism has already robbed Ukrainian people of social and national rights, they effectively attempt to cover up their own denial of the rights of the Ukrainian people to self-determination. The very real imperialist aggression of Russia is simply ignored. In a statement by the US-based Socialist Action, out of 10 demands listed at the end, not one calls for an end to the Russian invasion. The statement itself, incredibly, does not even condemn the invasion. The dual character of the conflict. That the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a brutal imperialist invasion of a former colony is clear. However, that is not the end of the story. Is there a significant other element of the conflict here, which belongs in the category of inter-imperialist conflict? The evidence suggests that there is. The Russian invasion of Ukraine cannot be divorced from the ongoing conflict between the US-led NATO alliance and Russia and its alliance. This did not start with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but has to be seen as part of an ongoing conflict, one side of which is the eastward expansion of the sphere of influence of US imperialism in the aftermath of the collapse of Stalinism. The most visible expression of this expansion has been the enlargement of NATO, in successive rounds of enlargement in 1999, 2004, 2009, 2017 and 2020, eastern European and Balkan countries acceded to NATO. The consequence is that the border of NATO has moved 800 kilometers eastwards since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Along with that come the positioning of NATO battle groups permanently stationed in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland and annual so-called Defender Europe operations which last year involved almost 30,000 troops on the Russian border. During the conflict itself, NATO military aid has poured into Ukraine. The US Department of Defence boasts that, quote, the United States has committed approximately $8 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since the beginning of the Biden administration, end quote. Over half of that has come in the six months since the Russian invasion. The US Congress has agreed a Biden proposal to give a total of $20 billion in military aid. On top of that, must be added the $1.5 billion from the EU as part of the European Peace Facility, and £2.3 billion from the UK government. The sections of the left which downplay the inter-imperialist element of this conflict often raise the call for arms for Ukraine. This may sound like sending rifles to partisan forces fighting the Russian invasion, the reality is very different. Irrespective of what the socialist left argues for or against, the most powerful imperialist country in the world is engaging in its single largest weapons transfer in history. These weapons are going to a Ukrainian military which is increasingly integrated into NATO. They are not being transferred by Western imperialism out of concern for the Ukrainian people's rights, but in pursuance of its own interests, which are not those of working class people. While this is presented by the US administration as supporting Ukraine's fight to defend their democracy, clearly anyone with a passing knowledge of either history or current affairs would be somewhat sceptical of that claim. Why would tens of billions of dollars of weapons be funnelled into a country to defend democracy when the same states are funnelling tens of billions into countries like Saudi Arabia, which are responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in Yemen and are no fans of democratic rights? If they are so greatly concerned with the rights of occupied peoples, why aren't they arming the Palestinians or the Western Saharans? These same states themselves currently occupy Iraq. These weapons and the unprecedented sanctions described by the French Finance Minister as all-out economic and financial war, are instead part of an inter-imperialist conflict between Western powers under US leadership and Russia. The US Defence Secretary has openly stated that the aim of the West is to ensure that Russia is weakened. None of this is to alibi Putin for his invasion or justify it. Regardless of the actions of NATO, the Russian invasion remains an inexcusable, brutal and imperialist invasion. As well as condemning their unjust war of oppression, We must look reality squarely in the face. A Russian imperialist invasion of a former colony is intertwined with an inter-imperialist conflict which is taking place on Ukrainian soil. What is the balance of these elements of the conflict? National liberation struggle and inter-imperialist conflict? Unlike with Serbia at the start of war, it is certainly not a case of 99% inter-imperialist conflict and 1% national liberation struggle. It has not, at least yet, resulted in an all-out global conflict with multiple countries being directly drawn in. The different aspects are more evenly balanced. However, the trend of development has been for the interimperialist element to predominate more over time, as more US weapons are sent and the number of NATO troops in Eastern Europe having increased tenfold since the start of the year. With the drive to consolidate US hegemony over European states and to expand NATO to include practically all EU countries, it is clear that the scene is set for a prolonged conflict. Karl Liebknecht's good advice. Karl Liebknecht's famous anti-war leaflet, putting an internationalist anti-war position, finished with the strident call, The main enemy is at home. This is not a timeless formula. Clearly, there are circumstances when the main enemy is not at home. For example, for the Vietnamese in 1970, the main enemy was in Washington DC. However, it is an appropriate guiding light for when we are dealing with inter-imperialist conflicts. For those of us both in the Western camp, which undoubtedly includes Ireland, we are subjected to enormous propaganda and pressure to support our side. Exposing the hypocrisy of US imperialism, the true motives of the Western imperial bloc, without wavering in our opposition to Russian imperialism and supporting the right of Ukrainian people, self-defence is vital. Those sections of the revolutionary left which downplay the inter-imperialist element of the conflict do acknowledge, to a greater or lesser degree, the existence of this rivalry as a factor behind the war. However, some argue that that it is a backdrop rather than an active factor in this war. Conor Kostick, for example, argues that the interplay of rival imperialism is effectively nothing new, and seems to consider that there being an inter-imperialist conflict is incompatible with also considering there is a legitimate war of national liberation. Interestingly, Gilbert Akar does seem to accept that both aspects of this conflict coexist. However, he argues that there is a, quote, key distinction between a direct war between imperialist countries and an invasion by an imperialist power of a non-imperialist country, where the latter is backed by another imperialist power, using it as a proxy of inter-imperialist rivalry. End quote. He suggests that, quote, In the first case, working-class internationalism requires that workers, including workers in uniform, i.e. soldiers, oppose the war on both sides, each opposing their own government's war, even if that would contribute to its defeat. This is the meaning of revolutionary defeatism. In the second case, revolutionary defeatism is required only from workers and soldiers who belong to the aggressor imperialist country, and in a much more active way than indirectly. They are required to sabotage their country's war machine. Workers of the oppressed nation, on the other hand, have every right and duty to defend their country and families and must be supported by internationalists worldwide. This leaves no role whatsoever for workers in an imperialist power which is engaged in a proxy war, apart from supporting the oppressed invaded nation. Despite Akhar agreeing that this imperialist state, the Western powers in this case, is engaged in an inter-imperialist conflict, albeit indirectly, his advice leaves workers in those states on the same side as their ruling class, with the main enemy in the other imperialist camp. akar's sharp distinction between an imperialist conflict involving hot clashes between two armies of two imperialist states and one that involves proxy battles doesn't make sense to me. It amounts to willfully choosing to take a superficial approach, in effectively ignoring the presence of inter-imperialist conflicts. It also results in a peculiar paradox. Akar would presumably agree that we live in a world of obviously increasing inter-imperialist tensions. He would also presumably recognise that the imperialist powers are seeking to avoid an open conflict because the threat of it, spiralling out of control, including the possibility of nuclear annihilation for humanity. But the result is that we will have increasing inter-imperialist conflicts, which will mostly have a proxy character, but where Akar doesn't advise workers in the relevant countries to oppose their own imperialist states. This analysis is wrong because it downplays a major feature of what is happening in the conflict, the mobilisation of Western imperialist power. The conclusions reached by those who support this analysis should cause others to rethink their position. NATO and campism This analysis leads both Kostik and Akar to a position of supporting NATO delivery of weapons to Ukraine. It leads to neutrality or support for Western sanctions targeting Russia. In perhaps the most extreme example, it leads to an effective dropping of opposition to NATO in the here and now. Murray Smith argues, quote, Talking about the dissolution of NATO as an immediate objective, as part of the Western left still does, does not make sense. It is even irresponsible, because it would leave the countries of the East, but also the Scandinavian countries, defenceless. We must answer the question posed by the populations of these countries. If we are not part of NATO, who will defend us against Russia? End quote. Some of those who downplay the inter-imperialist element of the conflict in Ukraine have taken to using the term campism to describe those who they disagree with. Clearly campism as a phenomenon, essentially a sort of enemy of my enemy is my friend position, which lines up with the camp of opposing the imperialism where you are based, does exist. For example, with those sections of the overwhelmingly Stalinist left who supported the brutal dictator Assad in Syria because he supposedly opposed US imperialism. However, to describe those who recognise the dual character of the current conflict as campist is inaccurate. It begs the question, are commons like Murray-Smith's not precisely campist, except they favour the camp of their own imperialist power, a much more comfortable position to be in than to be accused of being in the camp of the enemy? Failure to expose the real motives of the Western powers now, or even worse, wrongly suggesting, like Murray-Smith, that NATO is a force to defend people in the West, undermines the left's anti-militarist argument in the future. If we give succor to the idea that NATO can be a force for defending democracy and human rights, where will that leave us when its members engage in another blatantly imperialist anti-democratic intervention somewhere in the world? The question will be asked, if we accept that NATO is actually concerned with protecting democracy in Ukraine, then why not support joining NATO and expanding it further? What we say. What is the conclusion for this analysis? It means socialists must attempt to disentangle to the degree possible, the legitimate resistance to Russian imperialist invasion and the inter-imperialist conflict which we oppose. It means supporting the right of Ukrainian people to resist. We don't blame people in Ukraine for getting weaponry from wherever they can source it, but we do encourage them to operate on the basis of complete independence from NATO. If such genuine independent forces existed, socialists could even fundraise to send them weapons. However, those of us living in the Western camp, the dominant imperialist bloc in the world, cannot support NATO forces pouring weapons into Ukraine in the pursuit of an inter-imperialist conflict, risking an escalating spiral that could lead to Armageddon. We should support the Russian anti-war movement and demand the immediate withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine. A just peace would only be possible on the basis of the withdrawal of these occupation forces. Included in that should be the recognition of the right of minorities within Ukraine to self-determine their own future, an essential condition for the fair exercise of that right in Crimea or the Donbass region, for example, would have to be the withdrawal of the invading army and the right of all refugees to return. In contrast to the calls for further militarization, we should focus on demands which can assist the Ukrainian people. The demand for cancellation of Ukrainian debt, coming from social movements within Ukraine, may yet gather momentum, as it becomes clear that the reconstruction will be impossible with a mountain of illegitimate debt that arose because of the oligarchization of Ukrainian society. This debt has grown even further as a result of war loans from Western powers, which have no intention of releasing Ukraine from debt bondage. In Ireland, we are demanding the shutting down of the shadow banking system in the International Financial Services Centre, IFSC, which is used by Russian oligarchs and indeed by oligarchs of all nationality. However, it also means standing against the stream of pro-NATO and anti-Russian propaganda in the West. It means opposing the sending of NATO weapons into Ukraine, which are sent to pursue the interests of US and Western powers. Similarly, it means opposing the regime of sanctions on Russia, which are simply war by economic means for which ordinary people pay the price. A key strategic struggle in Ireland will be fighting against the growing drive for militarisation. There is little doubt that the final goal from the point of view of the Irish political and economic establishment is to fully join in European militarisation and then NATO. From their point of view, it is a goal which must be pursued step by step by taking every cynical advantage from Putin's vicious invasion to drive it. For the socialist left, an all-rounded understanding of what is happening in Ukraine arms us to effectively resist this militarisation drive. End of article.